Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles tonight to um, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Father, every time we open this book, we realize that we have a a dependence upon your Holy Spirit. Um, Even though we've read words that are familiar to our eyes and our minds, sometimes you can take that which is familiar and make it brand new and very powerful in a moment, like like a prophetic word to our hearts. Lord, I pray that tonight and the next eight weeks as we study um, what it means to dig into the Scripture and let, let the Word of God, Your Word, have its deepest impact in our lives. Um, as we do that, we pray, Lord, that all of our faculties, all of our attention, all of our interest would be part of the worship that we render to You on these Wednesday nights. We are listening, Lord, to what tools and to what um, things that You have provided for us as we read them in your word and we discover how to use various tools to get the most out of it, I, I pray that we would learn to put them into practice and indeed put them into practice, that our lives would change. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm glad you're with us tonight, and I'm glad you're with us over the next eight weeks because we've never done something quite like this before, and I think it's going to prove to be a shot in the arm for your spiritual life and in particular, studying the Bible. Now, I speak over 260 times a year, sometimes uh, more than that. But that's how many times I will give uh, a message throughout a typical year. Uh, Sometimes then I'll do a school of ministry, and so that's another weekly commitment that adds up even more. But I do that because I love doing it. It never gets old to me. It's my spiritual calling. But I feel like a chef. Uh, I feel like at least a cook, okay? I won't say a chef. I'll say I feel like a cook. I remember my mother used to um, um, say uh, frequently to us four boys who uh, would race to eat the meal before the other boys did uh, in, in a competitive manner. She would say, I have been slaving over the stove all day long for you boys. I'll never forget that phrase. And that frequently comes to me when the week and the next week and the next week becomes very, very, very much the same where I sit in a chair and I look at words and I pray and I ask God for wisdom um, and, I, and I seek the mind of the Lord in a text. I feel like a spiritual cook, like God has given me the privilege, and believe me, I count it as a privilege, to slave over the hot stove of studying the Scriptures to prepare meals. And tonight is a little introduction to the next eight weeks of what that looks like, what I do when I do that. And I I guard my time. If anybody knows uh, me very well and they know if they try to get a hold of me during the time that I spend studying, it's near impossible. It has to be like a national emergency or like a death of somebody really close to me 
to interrupt the time that I'm spending with the Lord in preparing messages during the week. I feel like in Acts chapter 6 where the apostles guarded their time and they said, we must not leave the Word of God to serve tables. We must continually give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So tonight, I want to sort of bring you into my world, into my study. Uh, I want you to put yourself in my place. So I'm going to take you to my study uh, where I prepare messages um, right now. And then we'll get back to the study in just a minute. Here it goes. Hey, I want you to put yourself in my place. Welcome to my study. This is the place where I cook, where I prepare spiritual meals by using the ingredients of observation, interpretation, and application. I typically come here early in the morning, I sit down, I pray, I open my Bible, and I do the hard work of studying. And I do all of that so that I can say, like Paul said when he wrote in the New Testament, for I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Now, in this study, there's lots of books. They're all over the place. I kind of look at them like friends. Some are old friends, some are new friends. All of them have a very unique role to play. Written by human authors, these books uh, point to the one book, the Bible. It's sort of like a tool. Each is crafted with its own unique role and message. Some are commentaries, some are language helps, some are research and historical books. But again, they all point to the book, the Bible, and what it means to our lives. In fact, if that's all that you have, just a Bible, you need to know it's enough. It really is. It's exactly what Peter said, all that pertains to life and godliness, to the knowledge of him who called us. But what I want to talk to you about, and what this whole series is about, is how you can prepare your own spiritual meals. Not that you're necessarily going to sit down and prepare sermons to preach, though some of you might. Not as though you're going to go out and start your own church, though again, some of you might do that. But what I really want is for you to be confident. Anywhere you turn in the scripture, you can feel comfortable and at home, and you can discover what God is saying for yourself. So, back to you, Skip. Okay, we had a little fun with that. Um, before I was married, uh, my, my then-girlfriend, Lenya, that's my wife, in case you didn't know, we, we wrote letters to each other. And uh, I actually, we have both kept the very first letters we wrote to each other when we first were dating. And I, I dug through them today, and I have one with me right here that she sent when she was living in Hawaii, and I had sent her some flowers, and I sent her a note, and she wrote a letter to me. Now, you'd like me to read it, wouldn't you? Okay. I won't read it all to you, but I'll read this, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Skip, I can hardly wait to see and speak with you. I super enjoyed the phone call Monday night. I had a hard time even falling asleep. I feel sorry for my roommates. 
Of recent, I'm so excitable and must be exhausting. It was such fun talking to you and such a surprise. She was surprised that I took initiative and and, uh, wrote her. Uh, It was such a surprise that at first I found myself at a loss for words, and that's rare for me. But after a few minutes, it was as natural as ever. Actually, I was content just to know that you were on the other end of the line, and it didn't quite matter what we talked about. But we did share, and what we did was great. I'm not going to read all of the letter, but at the end, um, she says, God blesses me in knowing that He is concerned with all of my needs and will supply them. Also, it just confirms my returning home even more. Uh, God is providing where He is guiding. Happy and anxious, sign Lenya. That's when she was deciding to leave Hawaii and come back, and we were going to start our dating relationship. Okay, now, when I got this letter, I read it I don't know how many times. I read it so many times that as I read it again, I thought, I remember reading that. I mean, it's fresh. When I got this letter... This was not like a bill that comes in the mail. This was not like a postcard that I get from a a long-lost relative. When I read this, I read it and I reread it and I thought, well, what did she mean when she wrote that word? And why did she choose that word? And I wonder what she was thinking when she said that. I hung on every word and as the relationship grew, it got better. I started parsing words and outlining the letters. And preaching. No, I didn't do that. But you get the point. You read love letters differently than you read any other type of literature. Now, you brought a Bible tonight. You brought God's Word. There's narrative in there. There's history in there. There's poetry in there. There's some didactive. There's some interactive. All different styles of literature. And yet, it is much more than that. It is, for those of us who know Him, a love letter And so we read it differently than we read any other kind of literature. Because this book, the Bible, promises to do more, guides us and directs us in life. Now, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the Bible is the best-selling and most widely distributed book ever. Ever. Since, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. So... For the 20 of you that enjoyed that, I'm glad. Um, Since 1815, since 1815, 2.5 billion copies have been sold. It has been translated into 2,233 different languages or dialects. Almost, almost every home in America has a Bible. In fact, 92% of every abode in the United States has at least one Bible. Even the homes of atheists. 92% of all Americans have at least one Bible. And the typical count of Bibles per household is three in our country. Well, let's just ask an honest question. How many of you in this room have more than one Bible? Raise your hand. Yeah, I have a lot of them. See? And that is the typical count. Three Bibles per household. The question is, and we were clapping that so many have been sold, who's reading them? That's a whole other issue. Who's reading them? Now, most people will say, well, I think the Bible is important to read. In fact, 75 million Americans, 
some 47%, will say the Bible is an important book to read. How many actually read it and how many actually have read it all is a completely different story. I don't know about your Bible reading habits. I don't know if you've ever read through the Bible once or if you're familiar with it. But, but I have a tendency to think that a large number of you are pretty adept at Bible knowledge and Bible reading. But maybe you need, maybe we all need to read it a bit more. You say, well, how, how do I know if I need to read it a bit more? Well, you know, there's some, there's some signs, top signs that would indicate you're not reading your Bible enough. If, for instance, you think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had some hit songs in the 1960s, you probably aren't reading your Bible enough. Or if when you open to the Gospel of John, a World War II savings bond falls out, you're probably not reading your Bible enough. If you think the minor prophets are the guys that work in mines and and dig stuff out, you're probably not reading your Bible enough. The truth is, we all could use consistent Bible reading. But, and this is a huge transitional point, but more than just reading through the Bible, which is something I think we should all do, we need to feed on the Bible. We need to even get past the printed word to the living word, Jesus Christ himself, who is the subject of the Bible. And one thing we must never do is just see the Bible and Bible study as the end it is simply the means to the end. It's a means by we can, which we can know the mind of God and increase our satisfaction, our relationship, our fellowship with God. But we shouldn't just end at Bible study. It should lead us deeper and lead us further. We're not supposed to be bibliolaters. It's not the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Bible. The Bible is important. You know that but it's to lead us into a deeper relationship with Him personally. So, over the next few weeks, you're going to learn about tools. What other tools to learn history, background, language, culture, without spending a lot of money? Do you need them? You you may or you may not. We're going to talk about those. Because a lot of questions I get is, where did you find that background that you talked about this morning or tonight? What book was it that you learned those uh, customs of the Jews, etc.? We'll tell you about some. They're very accessible. We're going to teach you how to observe a text. We're going to teach you how to become a good um, observer, a good... um, uh, sort of like uh, an investigator or an investigative reporter. What questions should you be asking when you read a section? And and I want them to become intuitive, so it's not a long, laborious process, but just some simple ways to observe what's going on in a passage. That's key, because from what we observe, we use to interpret the Bible. Observation is first, but you're going to also learn how to take the facts that you see and turn them into ways to interpret of what does this passage mean. I know you've heard people say, well, it's all a matter of your personal interpretation. No, it's not. There's some very simple and easy rules to follow to get the correct interpretation of just about every passage of the Bible. And then from there, we move to application. And we're going to teach you how to apply the text. And 
I'm going to give you six questions that if you can learn them and ask them when you have your quiet time, it will transform your quiet time. It'll transform the way you read the Bible before the Lord. That's what's coming up in this series. Psalm 119, I've asked you to turn there because I want you to see how much this guy, David, loved the Word of God. Now, Psalm 119, if you've turned there, you keep turning the pages and it looks like it never ends, right? That's because there's 176 verses in Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's a very unique psalm. It's an acrostic psalm. And now acrostic means that you take um, letters and the first letter or the first sentence begins with the first letter and the second sentence begins with the second letter and the third sentence begins with the third letter. And that's a typical acrostic psalm. Psalm 119 is a little different. There are 22 stanzas in this psalm. Each stanza has eight verses. Eight verses. What that means is the first section of eight verses all begin in Hebrew with the letter Aleph or A in in English. And the second eight begin with the second letter Bet or we would say B. So you can follow the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion, all the way through to the end. And you have eight stanzas, each beginning with the corresponding next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Some believe that Psalm 119 in ancient times was used to teach Hebrew children their alphabet. It's a long psalm. We don't have time to read it tonight, but we have time to read a couple sections of it for impact. So let's look at it together. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed. When I look into all your commandments, I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. I find myself quoting that almost every time I open the Bible to prepare or read for anything. I am a stranger on the earth. 
Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. You rebuke the proud, the cursed who stray from your commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Go over to uh, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, I pray, the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your judgments. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not strayed from your precepts. Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the very end. Boy, this guy loved the Bible. This guy loved the law, the statutes, the testimonies, the precepts, all synonyms for the same thing. He loved it. He loved it. Now, I have a hunch that there are many here tonight who love God's truth, who love God's Word, who love the Bible, and yet you've all gotten to places in your Bible reading where you find that sort of hard to get through, hard to read, hard to understand. But you still do it. You still consistently do it. I hope that's the case. I hope you don't say, well, you know what, since I can't understand that, forget it. I'll just go to church and let him just teach me, or I'll listen to it on the radio, or, 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 or I'll get CDs. One of the best things you could ever do is consistent Bible reading. And I'm going to emphasize that a couple times tonight. How many of you have ever heard of George Mueller? Okay, George Mueller was a man, 1800s, who lived by faith, and and ran an orphanage in England, London, called the Bristol Orphanage. In his lifetime, he took in over 10,000 children from the streets. Over 10,000. And he educated them, and he taught them the Bible, and he taught them a trade, and he taught them a skill. So much so that the secular world complained that he was raising up the poor to beyond their station in life. But he all did it. Did it in the name of the Lord. And he did it with the Bible as his guidebook. Listen to George Mueller, this man of faith, and his reverence for the Word of God. He said, The vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our life and thoughts. 
I solemnly state this from the experience of 54 years. The first three years after my conversion, I neglected the Word of God. Since I have begun to search it diligently, the blessing has been wonderful. Great has been the blessing from the consecutive, diligent, and daily study. I look upon it as a lost day when I have not had a good time over the Word of God. Now tonight, in the remainder of our time, I simply, as an introduction, before next week we get into the tools that can be furnished in your Bible study toolbox, I want to talk to you about the possibilities of Bible study and the power of Bible study. The possibilities and the power. And I want to teach you in this next several weeks how to cook your own spiritual food. Now, what if you got a letter? Let's say I wrote you a letter. And uh, maybe you got the letter and, and you saw that I had handwritten it. And so maybe you thought, oh, this may be interesting. Maybe not, but, but I'll see what he has to say. And so you open up the letter and you start reading it. And it's very confusing as you start reading it. It's words you've never heard before. I write to you, dear, and I put your name, and I say, Azawaza, Jazawaza, Surface Murphus Calorex Flex. And I sign my name. Now you read that, and you get a puzzled look. You think, A, this is a joke. Uh, B, he's learned another language that I don't know about. C, this is some secret code. Or D, I don't know, he's drunk or something. I mean, he's, it's, it, this is crazy. It's gibberish. You have to look at that coded message and start interpreting it, deciphering it, understanding what it means. It's cryptic to you. Now, that's precisely how many people view the Bible, honestly. They look at the Bible as some cryptic code that only experts can learn. And so you have to go to a special school. You have to go to seminary. And you have to get a master's degree and a doctor's degree. Because nobody can really understand the Bible unless you get that kind of a degree in a seminary. Or you go to some special training school. I want you to know that is not true. One of the fundamental teachings of the Reformation was called the perspicuity of Scripture. That the Bible, even in its translations, no matter what language you translate it into, is easily understood. Easily understood. And we'll give you tools to do that. Psalm 119, which we just read in Psalm, uh, verse 27 of that Psalm. uh, Notice that David says, Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I shall meditate on your wondrous works. Please notice that. David expected through the word for God to reveal himself. There was an expectation that he could understand it. In verse 100 of this long psalm, David says, I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. So, I believe in the next few weeks you're going to have adequate tools at your disposal to make you feel comfortable anywhere in the Bible, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. And you'll discover that the Bible is not a book for the elite, but it's a book for the ordinary masses, for all ages, 
for you, for you to understand, for you to grasp and teach to your children, and for them to grow up loving it. A key verse that I love to go back to is Deuteronomy 29, 29. If you don't know it, write it down. It'd be good even to memorize it. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So there are things you won't understand, I won't understand, and Joe, Ph.D. in seminary, won't understand, even though he might talk a long time about it. There are secret things, but there are revealed things, and they belong to us, and God wants us to mind them out. So the possibilities of Bible study. First of all, the ingredients. Since we're talking about spiritual cooking here, the ingredients are simple ingredients. You know, one thing you notice about uh, reading the scriptures is that the language is very earthy, very commonplace language. Um, Most of the people who wrote the Bible, that is from the human standpoint, were very ordinary people, with few exceptions, using uh, very simple illustrations. Peter was a fisherman. Amos was a herdsman. Luke was a doctor. Uh, He was one of the uh, exceptions. Um, Matthew was a tax collector, an IRS worker. There was just people from every gamut of society. And the way they wrote was pretty simple stuff. The culture they lived in was a farm-based culture, an agrarian culture. And so... The illustrations that they use are very simple. Sowing and reaping, water sources like Psalm 1, whoever takes in the word will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. These are simple, earthy, easy to understand, illustrative words that anybody can grasp. Even Jesus' parables were like that. He talked about seeds and tares and fields and coins, and water pots, etc. Then, the New Testament. Since that's sort of the book of the church, the New Testament, people look at it and go, it's all Greek to me. And and you'd be right if you said that, because it was written in Greek. But what you should know is that the Greek that it was written in was not classical Greek. It was Koine Greek. It was commonplace Greek. It was marketplace Greek. From the time of Alexander the Great to about 500 A.D., the common language was what we would call street-level Greek language, not the classics. The stuff that was spoken by and understood in every single place, common Greek, Koine Greek. Uh, You've heard the term koinonia before. Have you heard that term for fellowship? A lot of you know what that is. Uh, Koinonia which is the word translated in the New Testament for fellowship, means to have something in common. And the word koine Greek comes from koinonia. Uh, God condescended himself to the common language in the New Testament. And so, though he, condes- he, though he transcends us all, he condescended when he spoke to us and revealed himself to us. Now, that does not mean that the Bible is a breeze to understand. After all, this is the Word of God. And after all, like Paul said, we know in part. We know in part. We see through a glass darkly. And the more you study, there are depths of it that the more you get into, you just think, I just got to walk away from this because I, I still don't get it. There are many passages like that. 
And we would expect that, right? Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, says the Lord. So, do this. As you and I go through Scripture, and we believe it's God's revelation speaking to us, whenever you get to those parts that you go, huh? Just keep going. Don't stop. You know, meditate on it. Don't get bogged down in it. Keep going and create a little mental file. Just create a little area in your brain called waiting for further information. Waiting for further information. That information may come before you finish the chapter. That information may come in the next book. It might come in the New Testament if you're reading the Old Testament. It might come in a few years. It may never come, but create that file. Okay? Now, that file exists in my brain. There are things I still look at and go, hmm, man, that's puzzling. But I'll tell you what, I will never give up what I do know for those other things that I don't know. Some people get so hung up, I don't understand this. I'm just going to lose my faith. Why? Because you don't understand everything about God? (laughs) Duh. How about just camp on those things you know that you're certain of. There's a story told about a minister, and I believe it was Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia years ago. One of my favorite authors. Donald Gray Barnhouse was on a train riding across the country. He was eating lunch. And I think the lunch served that day was New England codfish, which has a lot of bones in it. So he's picking out the bones. He's eating it. He had his Bible open while he's eating lunch. And across from him was... An agnostic who noticed a Bible. And so he said to the preacher, Do you believe that book? Yes, sir, said Barnhouse. I believe every word of it. Oh, do you understand it all? asked the agnostic. No, said Barnhouse. I don't understand it all. The Bible is not without its difficulties. Ha! And so what do you do with those difficulties, asked the agnostic. Barnhouse smiled, knew where this was going, and he said, I'll tell you what I do. I eat the meat, just like this fish. I just eat the meat and leave the bones for some fool to choke on. (laughs) And he made his point very clearly to him. There's things I don't get, but there's a lot of things I do get. And those things that I do get are enough, enough information to change my life. Mark Twain once said, most people are bothered by those passages in the Scripture which they cannot understand. The Scripture which troubles me the most are the ones I do understand. Have you found that to be true? See, it's so easy to deflect by going, well, there's just a lot I don't understand. You know what? There's enough right here that's so plain to convict the heart and draw us to Christ and deal with life issues So don't get hung up. Just create the file, waiting for further information. So the ingredients are are pretty straightforward and simple. Also, the chefs, the cooks, are pretty simple, straightforward. I mean the Bible teachers. Now this brings up an issue. And when I say the cooks or the chefs, I'm not talking about the the authors themselves, though, as I said, they were pretty simple men. but, But human teachers... Do we need human teachers? If God has revealed to us the Word and we can learn how to cook 
uh, ourself a meal and we can learn to derive out of the scripture uh, enough that pertains to life and godliness, maybe we don't even need human teachers at all. After all, in verse 99 of this psalm, notice David said, I have more understanding than all my teachers. Your testimonies are my meditation. I've had a few students like that. And there are people, I've heard this argument, well, we we really don't need human teachers, we don't really need pastors or scholars, because I have the Holy Spirit. And typically they will quote what I'm about to quote, 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. It says, The anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. So they go, aha! You see, we don't need human teachers. It says you don't need anybody to teach you. Now let me explain some context here and some background that will help us understand the meaning. If you read through 1 John... And if you know a little bit of the history of what was going on in the church, a very prevalent teaching called Gnosticism, John was simply saying, because you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit is in you, he will give you the discernment to tell truth from error, heresy or heretical teaching from healthy teaching. Because these Gnostics said, well, you really can't know the deep things of God unless we initiate you. We must teach you the secret truths of our doctrine. And John is saying that's not true. The point is the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to do what He wants to do in the lives of the people of God. He uses His Word in human hearts, and it's a very, very powerful effect. The truth is, though you can learn what the Bible has to say, at the same time, human teachers are a gift from God. Did you know that? Did you know that human teachers, uh, pastors, Bible scholars, uh, radio and television uh, ministers, uh, people who provide insight and understanding are a gift from God? And Ephesians 4 teaches us this. He himself, that is Christ, gave some to be apostles some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. Notice these are gifts. These people are gifts that God gives to the church. That's the reason I have books in my library. I've had them since I was a young Christian. I get more. I read as many as I can because because others have plowed before me. They plowed before me, and I stand on their shoulders. I don't want to necessarily come up with anything new. And if, by the way, I come up with an interpretation that every commentary in my library says it's the wrong interpretation, chances are I'm wrong. So it's good to have that accountability. But because others have plowed before me, I want to see what they had to say. However, I'm trying to balance this out. However, though it's true that God gives human teachers to further our understanding and to inspire us, we can become conditioned to be spoon-fed. It's just so easy. I don't have to do anything. I just kind of show up and listen and go, yeah, uh uh-huh, yep, good, and go home and do it again. So the best balance 
of all of these truths I'm sharing is Acts chapter 17, verse 11. There was a church in Berea that Paul visited, and he visited several. But it says, when Luke wrote Acts 17, 11, he said, those who were in Berea were more noble-minded or fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word of God with all readiness of mind, but they searched the scriptures daily to see or to find out whether these things were so. I think that strikes the balance. So one of the healthiest habits you can have is to, when the Bible is taught, receive it. Open your heart. Let God use those who have labored before you and speak to your heart. But then, go to your Bible. Search the scriptures. See if these things be so. Now, for those of you who have never read through the whole Bible, and, and, and I could think I can guess why, if you started in Genesis. Genesis was great. Creation of the heavens and the earth. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, the patriarchs, Joseph, captivity into Egypt. And then you open up Exodus. Well, this is cool. Great story. Exodus, the birth of Moses. And then um, they're, they're getting ready to leave. And then you hit about chapter 21, 22, 23. And it's like, oh my goodness. And, and it keeps going. And there's laws and restrictions and regulations and cubits. And tabernacles and measurements and tribes and names that nobody can pronounce. And so... If you start in January to read through the Bible, you're good till about March. And then you give it up. I am again stressing and pleading for a consecutive reading through the Bible. Now, at a moderate rate, what is called pulpit speed, which is what it would take if you were to read out loud in an articulated fashion. Moderate reading. You could read through the Bible in 70, 70 hours. 70 hours. And that's uh, 52 hours in the Old Testament and 18 in the New Testament. That translates, if you do it 365 days a year, every day, 12 minutes a day. You can do this. You can read through it. You can read from cover to cover in a year easily. Now, if you slow down and you dig deeper and you meditate and, and you observe and interpret and apply like we're going to teach you to do, okay, it's going to take you a little bit longer. But until the Lord returns, what else are you going to do? you got time. Okay, so that's the possibilities of Bible study. And finally and secondly, and this is where I'm going to close tonight, the power of Bible study. The power of Bible study. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I'll quote it to you. The Word of God says Paul, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Listen to that again. The word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. One of the most powerful claims of the Bible is its effectiveness. The Bible claims over and over again to change the lives of those who read it over and over again. Medical books don't make that promise. Law books don't make that promise. Books by Oprah can't do that. Or Dr. Phil or Deepak Chopra. But the Bible can, promises to, and delivers a life change. And anybody who's encountered it honestly and openly has found that to be true. 
Because these other books may be good and useful for whatever discipline you've studied, but, but they're typically there for, for information or even inspiration. But the Bible is there for transformation. Transformation. So in the next eight weeks, all of those who teach are going to be constantly telling you this, that we want to give you these tools to get beyond the tools, even beyond the book, to the author himself, to the living word behind the word. But it's effective. Isaiah 55 says, or I'm sorry, in the book of Isaiah, uh, as rain comes down and the snow from heaven and does not return there. This is Isaiah 55:11. But water the earth and make it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Let me tell you one of the greatest joys I have as a pastor. It's the joy of being able to stand up in a pulpit with this product. Let's call it a product. A product that works. I know the product works. I know it delivers. I've seen it over and over again, year after year, change people's marriages, personal lives, uh, outlook, attitude, families, over and over again. I love having a product that works. I heard about a lady who lived out in the country and a vacuum cleaner salesman knocked on her door. And, you know, he was just the salesman. You know, he turned on the language and the pitch and he was really good. He was talking fast. Lady, I have the greatest product in the world. This vacuum cleaner is better than any vacuum cleaner you've ever seen. It can suck up any kind of dirt. In fact, I got to watch it because it would suck up your carpet if I didn't control it. You know, he just went on like that. She's just sort of listening, looking at him. And without even asking permission or slowing down in his speech, he ran to the fireplace and grabbed some of the soot that was there and threw it on her carpet. And said, now don't worry, ma'am, because this vacuum cleaner will pick that up. And if it doesn't, you can give me a spoon because I'll eat it right now. And she handed him a spoon and said, well, you, uh, you, uh, you better start eating because we ain't got no electricity. Okay, how frustrating would it be to have no power to change that situation? Pretty frustrating. No power. The Bible makes promises, and with the promises comes in the power to change a life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, the power of Bible study. And I'll give you six ways it can change you. These are six promises from the Word of God, and we'll close with these. Number one, it prompts salvation. It prompts salvation. It won't give you salvation just by reading it, but it prompts salvation. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, From childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. How do they prompt salvation? Simple. They point to Christ. Over and over again. Old Testament points to Christ. New Testament, ultimate, all of it points to Christ. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. Just as every book has its subject and every story has its hero, the subject and the hero of the Bible is Jesus Christ. 
So that's the first promise. It prompts salvation. Number two, it prepares you for life. It prepares you for life. 2 Timothy 3.17 All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I've been to college and I've taken classes Classes that prepared me for the discipline in the field that I was entering. I remember sitting through my radium physics class thinking, why am I doing this? But it was preparing me for a profession. The Bible prepares you for life. Prepares you for life. Number three, it promotes growth. It promotes growth. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Peter says, as newborn babes crave or desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If you crave truth and crave the word of God, you will grow because of it. Can I just make a little pitch for getting off junk food? You know, there's a lot of Christian junk food. It's in every Christian bookstore just about. Now, we sort of make it our policy to watch out for it and filter it out. And there's certain books we don't carry and certain authors we don't carry simply because they're the latest trends and you can get those books anywhere, but it won't necessarily help real growth. There's winds of doctrine that blow through and everybody goes, wow, for about a year and then it blows away and something else comes. The Word of God, understanding God's truth, And living by it will promote growth. Number four, it points direction. It points direction. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word, we read it, is a lamp to my feet and it is a light unto my path. If you don't know where you're going in life, the Bible principles will give you direction. You know how amazing it has been for me to watch discipleship take place because of the Word of God. There is a corresponding... I can track this. I've seen this for years. There is a corresponding decrease in the need for counseling, one-on-one counseling, when people understand and are bathed in and enlightened with the Word of God. Solid Bible teaching. I've seen it over and over and over again. Places where there is no solid teaching or people who do not understand biblical principles require much more personal discipleship and personal mentoring where I have seen the Word of God over and over again through a number of ways transform lives. Sometimes personally, sometimes in mass audiences, but I've watched it. It points direction. Number five, it produces joy. It produces joy. You ever see the word in the Bible, blessed? Blessed? Now, if you're a modern reader and you're new to Bible reading, you come across the word blessed, you go, what is that thing? Blessed. And it's a very Bible word. And it is often better translated because the meaning is closer to this, happy. So in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the Lord. Oh, how happy is the man that makes the word of God his delight. The Bible promises that kind of joy. In Psalm 119, verse 162, 
I rejoiced at your word as one who finds great treasure. And also the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, Psalm 19 tells us. Sixth, and finally, we'll close with this. The Bible promises to provide victory. Victory. What is one of the metaphors for the scriptures in Paul's writings? It's a battlefield term. It's called the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. Which tells you that we are always on the battlefield. We're always in a spiritual battle. It's called the sword of the Spirit. So when Satan attacked Jesus Christ during those 40 days, what did Jesus counteract it with? Word of God. Scripture. It is written. It is written. It's the sword of the Spirit. It provides victory. Um, I've always loved the story of the factory. I don't, don't know where it was. don't know what the factory was about, but they had specialized machines in the factory, and the principal machine that ran it broke down, and they couldn't fix it. And they hired experts, and they couldn't fix it. Finally, they got the company that provided the machine and the man who built the machine to come in himself, and he looked it over and took a tiny little hammer and went like this. Ping! started working. And he gave him a bill for $1,000. And the owner of the factory said, $1,000? That's crazy. Give me an itemized bill. Why is it worth $1,000? He goes, okay, it cost $1.00 for the ping of the hammer, $999 to know exactly where to ping the hammer. That's what he got paid for. Have you discovered the Bible knows just where to hit you? Just where, just exactly where to cut. It is the sword of the Spirit, as we mentioned Sunday, that cuts and between the divisions of soul and spirit. So, for the next few weeks, and beginning next week with tools, we're going to share with you how to prepare a spiritual meal to eat it and feed it for yourself. I want to close tonight with a letter. It's a real letter. It's from far away. Just like I opened with a letter from my bride, I'm going to close with a letter uh, from a man in Uganda. Uh, several years ago, I wrote a little book called How to Study Your Bible and Enjoy It. And uh, it's been translated in several languages around the world. But you never know what kind of impact learning how to study the Bible will make in a person's life. I live for stuff like this. He says, Dear Pastor Skip, as I write this letter, I'm looking at a book that I treasure called How to Study the Bible and Enjoy It. With your name and photo as the author. It was given to me by my pastor, Jesse Rich of Calvary Chapel in Jinja, Uganda. You know Jesse Rich? He's one of our missionaries. He started a school of ministry there. The book has helped me to learn how to study the Bible and understand it. It is now two years since I have received this book, and my life has not remained the same. It has cultivated my zeal to study the Bible. Now get this. And I have two hours daily for this purpose. Here's a guy who learned how to cook his own meals. Now every day... Two hours in the kitchen, he's carved out, and he's rewarded because of it. That's why we're doing this little eight-week series, so that you will say, Man, I can cook. I get it. I just made a cool meal, and I got fed because of it. We want you to know those very tools that we use. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we 
hold in our hands a, a very unique document. We have come to understand that from an earthly perspective, there are 66 different books that have been given over a period of about 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors in three unique ancient languages on three different continents from all walks of life. And yet, it all relates to one another. It does not contradict another book in it. And it is food for life. And all those who have been exposed to it have understood that it's because there is one author that has superintended the writing of these human authors as they were moved by the Holy Spirit when they wrote it. We thank you, Lord, that it has stood the test of time and of scholarship. And we thank you, Lord, that we can rely upon it. And I pray, Lord, that not only would we rejoice when we hear it preached, but we would really rejoice when we learn how to extract from it the very truths and principles that are life-changing. And I pray we would have the daily delight of going through and having you speak to us so that we can leave our session, whether it's in early in the morning or at lunchtime or in the evening, and say, God spoke to me. And this is what he spoke to me. Lord, we thank you for this church that loves your word and these people who love to worship. And now we trust that you're going to reward them because you said in your word you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. So we look forward to what you have for us in the next seven weeks after tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.